This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 145. Before we get into this podcast, I would like to give you a quick trigger warning here at the beginning. This podcast is very emotional and deep. There are things that may upset you, things that may not be appropriate for young listeners. So I just want you to be aware that this podcast is about infertility, miscarriage, and infant loss. And I hope that it will be helpful for those of you that have experienced these things in your life. So thank you for listening and let us get into the podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today, I'm honored to host a serious discussion on infertility, miscarriage, and infant loss with some of the, the bravest women, I think, out there that have volunteered to be on this podcast with me. They're my very, very special guests. And I'm just going to briefly introduce each one of them, and then we'll get started in this discussion. Um, first, I have Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones. She is the Director of Unleashed Coaching and Consulting. And she's been on the podcast with me a couple times before, and I've really enjoyed spending time with her. I also have Dr. Jessica Lindahl, and she is the Co-Chief of, co of Staff at Apple Grove Veterinary Care. And I also have Dr. Lindsay Ruland. She's the owner and chief of medicine at Emergency Veterinary Hospital of Ann Arbor. So welcome all of you. I really appreciate you being here. And um, Jessica, or Jess, from, uh, from Australia, she's early in the morning and we're in the evening. So we're on a whole different day. Um, but she told me when we got on this, this call, that um, it's International Pregnancy and Infant Remembrance Day this week. So when we put this podcast out, it'll probably just have passed. So it's a really good discussion to have um, at this time. So I appreciate you all being here. I really do. I'm, mm -hmm. I am facilitating. Yeah. That. Really yeah. That it's something that more women than anyone cares to kind of think about in terms of sheer numbers go through something similar, if not the same. And the veterinary industry is full of our demographic and I can't imagine that it's not something that's, you know, concerningly common and concerningly untalked about. So well done for, for wanting to talk about it. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you being the one that kind of spurred this on. And um, kind of had the idea that this might help some people. So do you want to start, Jess, and kind of tell us a little bit about your story? And then we'll go through and let everybody kind of share what they've been through. Yeah, sure. So my story is probably on the unconventional side. Um, I am 35 years old and I decided at, I don't know, my late 20s, very early 30s that I was not having a great deal of luck finding the man of my dreams um, and decided that I was going to make a plan that if, if he didn't come along in the near future, um, that children was something that I wanted no matter what, um, so that I was going to go down this journey by myself. So on my 34th birthday, that was the sort of um, 
process that I kicked off and decided to, you know, go see a fertility specialist, work out how to become what we would call a single mum by choice um, and, you know, use an anonymous sperm donor to get the one thing that I really wanted out of life, which is, you know, a baby. And I had all of the tests. I went through everything, um, you know, very thorough sort of fertility workup, all clear, perfect uterus, perfect AMH, which is kind of, you know, the simplest, most common way of looking at your, you know, quality of your remaining eggs. Um, everything came up great. Absolutely no reason to think that I wouldn't have success really early. I was well younger than most people who try IVF because a lot of people don't get to IVF until they're having fertility troubles with a partner or they're a lot older or those sorts of things. So um, I was given a really good prognosis and um, had two intrauterine inseminations, which were unsuccessful, which, you know, isn't that unusual. They do have a much lower success rate um, and then went through an IVF round and did manage to get pregnant on that round. Um, and at eight weeks had what we call a mis miscarriage, which is where the baby has passed away, but your body doesn't work that out. Um, so it wasn't until I went for a scan thinking everything was great, suffering all of the fun nausea and delightful things, um, that there was no heartbeat. Um, but they make you do these unpleasant things like wait a week and recheck. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so that's fun. And so then that was, that was pretty devastating. Um, after the, the tragedy of it, still needed to have a DNC, so effectively a, a termination surgery to go in and, and take baby out. Um, and there was no known reason. We sent the embryo off for cytogenetic testing. Nothing wrong with baby, chromosomally normal, nothing wrong with me. Um, so we tried again. And after a lot more drugs and a lot more needles and a lot more um, hormones, um, I got pregnant again successfully and this time made it a week further. Um, had a scan where there was a heartbeat, but much slower than it should have been. Um, so again, they make you come back a week later and you wait a week of knowing that the prognosis is really, really terrible. Um, and you go back a week later and oh, actually, no, that the heartbeat's a little bit better now. Actually, it's growing, you know, okay, we might be all right. So then you have a week of hope and maybe optimism and then you go back a week later and then, oh, there is still a heartbeat, but it hasn't really grown this week. So yeah, that miscarriage took four weeks um, before, again, another mis miscarriage and that it, it passed away, but my body didn't know about it. Um, another DNC on my birthday, the same day my sister gave birth to my first niece. No. So I went from the hospital at one side of the city having a DNC to another hospital at the other side of the city to meet a newborn. Um, and that's where I am now. So um, struggling a little bit, feeling pretty low a lot of the time, um, but ready to try again because when you want something, you go for it, I guess, and you have to keep going for it um, so that you don't have any regrets. And, and that's the stage of life that I'm at at the moment. So what do you go through, Jess, during that week of waiting? Like, I can't even imagine. It's insane. It's just this 
you know, you're miserable, but you want to believe, you know, you because I'm sure that I'm not the only vet out there that then, of course, reads every single scientific article that's ever been written about. Mm-hmm. I want statistics. I want answers. I want to know. And, um, you know, I got to the point where when I went back for the, the future scans, you know, I knew that as soon as the ultrasonographer said, you know, heart rate of 120, I was like, oh, well, it's okay if it's 120, if it's over six and a half millimeters, you know, <laughs> like I knew all of these things. And um, particularly with that second miscarriage, which took four different weeks of that really hell in limbo, um, you, I got to the point where by the time I finally had a scan where she'd passed away, I was pleased. And that is a horrible thing to say out loud and to admit to yourself that you went into a scan hoping your baby is dead because it is better than the waiting to find out your baby is dead. And you know it's going to happen and you know that, you know, it's pretty much no longer compatible with life. So, yeah, the the, the guilt you then have to live with that you walked into a scan wanting there not to be a heartbeat because it would be easier for this to be over now. There's there's nothing quite like it. Yeah, just because of the waiting is so hard. Mm -hmm. The waiting is absolutely the worst. And yet, you know, you can look and go, you know, there's a 90% chance that you're going to lose it. But you can convince yourself. Someone has to be that 10%. Why couldn't it be me? Why why can't I be that one person? Why, you know, statistics has to work like that. Right. Um, And so you can still hang on to this thread of hope. And I'm not going to lie, that's the dangerous part. And the up and down, probably. Like you're hopeful and then then you're... going through the statistics realistically and it's like that roller coaster of emotion. Yeah, for sure. Ugh. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, I feel like in our field, diagnostics may mm. not say exactly what's going on with our patients. Mm. And so then we think, well, maybe those statistics are wrong. Yeah. Maybe they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Maybe and you want that to be the case. Yes. It's very easy to let yourself find exceptions to the rule. And, you know, I'm on a couple of single mum by choice Facebook groups and, you know, you make the probably mistake of posting, has anybody's baby been this size and had this heart rate and still gone on to be successful? And some people say yes, because that's how statistics works, is if you ask enough people, You'll find that the one. You yeah. will get these positive anecdotes and you want you cling to them because you believe that it could be you. And yeah, the roller coaster. The roller coaster is by far the, the most upsetting part of it. Yeah. So Lindsay, do you want to kind of tell us your story? Maybe I'll go through the stories and then I'll we'll ask some more questions. Yeah, sure. So um my story's a little different. Um I uh, was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome shortly after getting married. Um, so I'm married to my high school sweetheart. So I, we were pretty young. I was 23 when we got married. And they told us right away that it'd be very difficult for us to have children without fertility medications. Um, surprisingly, we got pregnant with our first son pretty easily. Um, no medications, no interventions. I was kind of surprised. And we had a lot of complications in early labor throughout the whole pregnancy. Um, I, Before opening my emergency clinic, I've always been an emergency veterinarian. I worked at another 
emergency clinic prior. And I thought that the early labor was probably the long hours that I worked. Um, then we struggled to have our second son. Um, not too much in retrospect. You know, I think we had our second son within two years after our first son. Um, he had a lot of medical complications that diagnostics didn't pick up. Um, he was born with a skull deformity that the ultrasounds never picked up. He had major skull reconstruction at the age of six months. He's a perfectly normal child now, um, but we had a lot of complications with that. And then after that, we really struggled. Um, we had eight miscarriages. Um, some were very early on, some were a little bit later in the first trimester. Um, I still, at that point, I was a practice owner. So you have to be the leader and you have to hide your emotions a lot. Um, I think maybe by the second or third one, our doctor recommended a fertility specialist. Um, we continued to have miscarriages at that clinic despite interventions and they didn't really seem to investigate why it was happening. Um, it was really disheartening. Do you think maybe because you had two kids already, do you think they were like dismissing you because of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, also at that clinic, they were very heavily reliant on the nurses and the medical assistants that were doing the ultrasounds for follicle sizes. And um, any, any input that I would try to give was quickly dismissed by the nurses. And um, at that time, we were not doing IUI or IVF or anything like that, but we were doing um, different oral medications. And I kept saying, you know, this isn't working and obviously I'm getting pregnant, but then it's not, something's wrong, something's wrong. I think we need to do some testing. Um, They really dismissed it, wouldn't really talk to the doctor about it. By the time I spoke with the doctor about it, he dismissed it as well. It was really, really disheartening. Um, so we ended up switching to a different fertility clinic and she was amazing. Um, really personable, really sat down, wanted to go through every aspect of what our lifestyle was like, you know, how did we get pregnant so quickly with our first son? What were the struggles with our second son? What were the issues, complications that we had with the first pregnancy and the second one, as well as why was our second son, you know, why did he have a skull deformity? And she really wanted to do a lot of genetic testing, you know, the kind of extensive testing that I'm sure Jess went through. And everything came back very normal. Um, So they told us, right, everything came back normal. In in hindsight, they just had missed a couple of things on the -hmm. the blood work. Um, So we actually got pregnant right away with our daughter through them. And everybody was really happy and kind of shocked that it happened so quickly. We struggled with issues throughout the pregnancy. I had um, a strange antibody that showed up called an anti-Kel antibody. No one knew where it came from. I've never had a blood transfusion. I've only been with my husband, who's my high school sweetheart. Like it just, there's no reason why I should have had this anti-Kel antibody. But what they said is that it could kill her, could kill our daughter. So we were going through maternal fetal medicine specialists. They were monitoring her extensively. And then at some point they really kind of dismissed everything and said, you know, 
we think you're fine. We don't need to keep an eye on her. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about this. Like we've really struggled to get pregnant with her. We've prayed for a daughter for 10 years. We finally are pregnant with a little girl. And like, I'm not going to, with my history of like, why are you just going to dismiss this? Um, we got pretty upset with them and ended up switching to a different hospital system. How far were you along then with her? Um, I was about six months along when we transferred to just, a different hospital. They were like, you're fine. Yeah, it was very interesting. They said that um, with the anti-kill antibody, she could become critically anemic and need intrauterine blood transfusions. And um, I had to really, my husband, I really had to twist their arm to do the, with the, the um, typical process for that diagnostic process is to, and monitoring process is to do weekly ultrasounds where you monitor some of the blood flow in the cerebral arteries. And so we had to really push them to do those weekly ultrasounds to monitor the blood flow through there. And, and they had some calculation they could do to figure out if she was anemic or not. I'm very glad that we had those ultrasounds <laughs> because I got to see her every week. And um, so we switched. So I'm going to cry. It's fine. We, we switched to another hospital system. <clears throat> they were much more personable. They were much more like, oh yes, let's look through everything. But also at the same time, they were relying on the other hospital system that's supposed to be one of the best in the world. And so I think they kind of thought you were seeing maternal fetal medicine at one of the best universities in the country, in the world. So maybe we don't need to look through everything they did and we'll just take their word. And they said everything would be fine. And two days before she died, um, I um, was a typical practice owner um, taking on the burdens of all of my team because I cared so deeply for them that I didn't want them to be overworked. And instead I took the burden on and I was working six overnights a week at nine months pregnant, just not good. Um, and uh, two days before she passed away, I had this really awful feeling. Um, I had only gained, I think, 12 or 16 pounds through the whole pregnancy. I didn't feel well. Something didn't seem right. I just had this really, I, I, I had this moment. I remember being in my bathroom. <laughs> I had a headache. I remember being in my bathroom taking some um, Excedrin for my migraine and having this sudden, awful, dreadful feeling like, and I collapsed to the floor just bawling. And I remember thinking, I'm just anxious because I just want her to be here. I'm just anxious. It's fine. And the next day we went to a doctor's appointment and they said, you know, you've lost four pounds since your last visit. And I said, you know, I really don't, something doesn't feel right. I'm really worried about her. Um, I don't feel well, you know, and they took my blood pressure. They said, well, it's borderline, but it's not really, your blood work looks fine. You don't have protein in your urine. Like everything's fine. They did a, um, an NST, a non-stress test. Her heart rate was way higher than it normally was. Um, her heart rate was normally in the 120s to 130s and she was at 170. And my husband and I were both really worried. We were both really, really concerned. And they told us everything's fine. <laughs> She's fine. You're fine. They didn't ultrasound her. They didn't do anything else. Um, sent us on our way. There was a cat at the clinic that needed surgery. It had a foreign body obstruction. Um, so I went back to work and did surgery on a cat. The next day was supposed to be my first day of maternity leave. I was going to take some, a couple, a couple weeks off before our, our 
she was here, you know, supposed to be here. It was actually a week before our C-section. And I was just going to take some time off beforehand, but I um, had a cat. I had been managing his case. Um, he needed a toe amputation. Of course, anybody else could have done it. But I, here I go back in. And halfway through the amputation, I had this really severe abdominal pain and um, almost collapsed. And I almost ultrasounded her on my way out. And I'm really glad I didn't because uh, I would have seen her dying. That just would have been awful. And I didn't feel well that whole night. Um, they had told us everything was fine the day before. So I, I just went based off what they were saying. Cause it like Jess was saying, you just want to believe them. You just want to believe that what they're saying. And I came home and I told my husband, he could go to the bar with a friend and watch a football game and everything would be fine. I was having these really weird contractions. I just didn't feel right. And I knew in my heart, I knew I just, I just didn't. You didn't want to know. I don't want to go in. You didn't want to know. <clears throat> no. So the next morning I realized she hadn't moved. And, um, you know, as, as veterinarians, I don't know if you guys ultrasound, but I do ultrasound. Um, I run an ultrasound service through our clinic too. I ultrasound things all the time. We got to triage the next morning. I just like, expected we were just going to deliver her that day. My two older boys were there, my in-laws. Um, everyone's all happy. <laughs> and they put the heart rate monitor on. They can't find any movement. And immediately we knew something was wrong. And and they bring the ultrasound in and, you know, you can see her aorta. I can see gas around her right away. So I knew then like, you never forget that image of the aorta with no blood flow in it. And the, the poor resident that had to tell us, <clears throat> I don't remember much after that, except I just was screaming, no, no, no. And take her out now, do CPR. I mean, I was hysterical um they didn't really know why she had passed away I had eaten that morning to try and get her to move so they made me wait for a c-section um I don't remember how many hours but it was a while and then they delivered her and let me hold her and um awful so awful <clears throat> and they said Afterwards, they didn't want to tell me right away, but they found a watermelon-sized blood clot in my uterus. I think they were all shocked that I was alive. Normally, with a placental abruption, they code the mom and the baby at the same time. Um, but she was wedged in such a way that she saved my life. So, um, we got to spend three days with her. What's her name? Really her name's Olivia, Olivia Rose. And um, there's this amazing invention called a cuddle cot, which I had just heard about a couple weeks earlier from another vet mom. And I'm so glad that I had heard about it beforehand because I wasn't scared when they brought it in. And we got to spend three days with her. We had a lot of family and friends that came to visit. Our older boys got to hold her. We all took pictures. It seems, it, you know, if I had heard stories about it before, I would have been like, that's so odd to take a picture with your dead daughter. <laughs> but we just adore those pictures now. So um, so that was October 22nd of 2017. So her three-year birthday is coming up. And 
it's really hard. I mean, she's absolutely a huge part of our lives still. Our boys talk about her. Our whole family talks about her. It changed the way I practice medicine. She changed the way I lead my team. She changed everything for us. Um, I thought about selling my clinic afterwards. I didn't want to be a veterinarian. I didn't want to go back to the place where she had died. But I couldn't do that, right? <laughs> so um, I decided you have two paths you can take. You can either just curl up in the fetal position and just cry all day long, which is what I wanted to do. Or you can make something positive come from it. So we tell Olivia's story all the time. I know we have saved several babies, several moms who have experienced similar symptoms, and I urge them to go in. Even though the nurses are saying, no, it's fine, and I just urge them to go in. And as I know Olivia's story has saved babies, and that's all I can ask for. So that was us um, after Olivia. We knew we still wanted to have kids. I had a vision when I was five. I had a dream that I had twins. I had, had a dream when I was five that I had boy-girl twins. And um, but we knew we still wanted kids. Um, after Olivia, we had a missed miscarriage at 10 weeks and had a DNC. And then after that, um, we got pregnant with our twins. And I have two and a half year old boy-girl twins. Wow. They look exactly like they did in my dream. It's amazing. The strangest thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you never, you never take those things for granted again. That's for sure. It's changed how I lead my team. How did you do during the pregnancy with the twins? Was that t- like terrifying? Were you scared every yes. day? Yes. Absolutely terrifying. Anxiety is huge. I mean, I'm it I can't imagine. Like, I don't, I can't imagine how you go through the next pregnancy and just try to be we, okay. Um, you know, this is probably sounds odd, but the, the doctor who had originally said Olivia was fine. <clears throat> She showed up to our hospital room after she was born. Hysterical. Absolutely hysterical. She just kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we handed out um, rose, pink rose pins to all of the team that helped with her. And then um, we made the decision when we were pregnant with the twins that we were gonna we were gonna go with the same team again. That they knew our case really well. Uh, that doctor was so honest and so compassionate with us and so authentic that she could show up and admit that she was wrong. That had to be so hard for her. Right? How noble. I mean, she said, she admitted she was wrong. She apologized. She said, I can never change it, but I can change it for the future, right? To save other babies. And So we decided to go with her and she was super attentive. (laughs) Um, Any little thing we were in there, she was checking everything um, that we went with the same maternal fetal medicine team. They were great. They were very attentive because they realized they had missed some things. I have some strange clotting disorder. No one knows the name of it. They just call it syndrome X. I have an MTHFR mutation, so I cannot metabolize folic acid. And 
We didn't discover that until I pulled all my blood work. After Olivia died, I asked for all my records, located that abnormality. It turns out if you take high doses of folic acid, which is what they do in fertility treatments, if you have this mutation, you can't metabolize it. And high doses of or high amounts of the metabolites um, or the folic acid floating around can create homocysteine, which leads to significant clotting abnormalities. And that was my issue. That wow. that was my issue, and no one no one knew it. No one picked it up. Yep. So we changed it with the twins. It was nerve wracking. They almost died. Um, I had a really bad feeling again. I had only gained about sixteen pounds again with a twin pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, I had gestational diabetes, which twin pregnancies get commonly. I said something wasn't right. I had a bad feeling and my team immediately knew that that's how I felt before Olivia and I was right. So they brought me in. My blood sugar was really low. Um, They admitted me and within 36 hours, their placentas both failed. Mm -hmm. Um, By, I think over the weekend, my blood sugar was in the 30s. Um, By Monday morning, their heart rates were not reactive on the NST. They delivered them and we asked for the same team that delivered Olivia. And we brought them all in. They had all been so involved with the twin pregnancy. Um, It was such a joy (laughs) to have them all there. Um, And our our girl twin, Sophia, looks exactly like Olivia. (laughs) Uh Looked exactly like her. The whole team gasped when they took her out. She looks just like her. Nate also looks like her, but he was in a lot of distress when he was born. Um, And he's having some residual issues now from it. Um, But yeah, it was quite quite an experience. Um, I won't be having more kids because um, apparently I had a window in my uterus that was about that big. They could see the twins through it. And they said, if I had bent over to put my socks on, they would have ruptured and we, all three of us would be gone. So that's my cue. That yeah. That can't do this anymore. Yeah. But um, very long, difficult process for us. Um, you know, when you get that far along and, mm. um, and, then, the, and then someone makes a boo-boo. <laughs> Yeah, it's so devastating. So that's my story. It's my long story. Oh. Well, congratulations mm-hmm. on the twins. That's a blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're a joy. Well, and Olivia is a blessing as well. Yes. To other children. Every right? day. Mm-hmm. So Jessica, do you want to tell us your, your struggle and your story? Sure. Um, Mine's yet a little bit different um, from you guys, but I took notes so I can try to remember. It's been a process, but um, basically we started, my husband and I got married in 2013 and then we waited until about 2015 to start trying for a family. Um, I got pregnant right away and then right around like the 12 week, 11, 12 week mark, I had a miscarriage. Um, I didn't have to have a DNC, but still 
obviously very traumatic to go through something like that when you're so excited, it happens so fast, you think everything is going to be fine because everyone else is fine. And um, so that happened and basically just said that it happens really commonly. They didn't look into it too much at that point. And so um, we continued to keep trying through like 2016, um, finally got pregnant again in, in like midway through 2017. Um, and I miscarried again, probably around like the six to seven week mark. So again, pretty early on. So that's when they started trying to look into things a little bit more. And they did find that I had um, a clotting disorder, antithrombin three deficiency. So they're pretty sure that's part of the reason why the miscarriages took place since I'm um, pro-coagulatory or like prone to throwing clots probably into my placental attachments. Um, they never did any analyzing of the fetuses or anything like that. But um, so then basically just kind of went on aspirin and didn't really find a whole lot else to figure out why we we're having so much trouble getting pregnant and staying pregnant. Um, so we finally asked for some help through our OB and were referred to a fertility doctor um, in 2018. Um, had three rounds of like IUI late in the year. Um, and none of those were successful. And then basically my husband ended up shattering his leg in a really bad accident. So things got put on hold for a minute along with like insurance reasons, but um, started the process of egg retrievals to start the process of IVF in early 2019. Um, so I had my first egg retrieval and that failed all the eggs or the embryos degraded. And so then went through another egg retrieval where they just blasted me with drugs and made a ton of eggs and got a handful of embryos that were genetically okay out of that round. And then I got my first embryo transfer um, in what about in October of 2019 and got pregnant. So was able to stay pregnant through the whole thing. I, it was a little bit scary because I developed a short cervix around um, like 17, 18 weeks of that pregnancy. So that was really scary because they basically said your cervix can dilate at any point and you lose the, the pregnancy. So they medically managed it and I seemed to respond. And, and so everything was fine there. And then kind of right at the end of the window where they worry about the short cervix issue, they found a possible like um, esophageal obstruction on an ultrasound at his anatomy scan. So then I had to go to maternal fetal medicine for that. But then they said everything looked okay down there. So, and then COVID happened and that was terrifying when you're pregnant because just don't know what's going to happen. So um, it was just kind of one thing after another during that pregnancy and I made a group decision with my team at work to step back from seeing any appointments appointments um, or doing anything because we just didn't know all the unknowns of COVID at that time. So um, I felt very supported by them through that process. Um, and so I had my son um, last year in June and overall pretty healthy guy, had a few little heart defects, but things that we're just monitoring at this time. Um, and then we wanted to try right away because I'm 35 now. So we wanted to try right away for another one. So I had an embryo transfer this past February that was unsuccessful. Um, and then had a third embryo transfer in um, a few months later, that would have been in June. And um, this Wednesday, I'll be 20 weeks along. So um, that's kind of the quick and dirty version of, of my story. And I've got, because my son has those um, couple of heart defects, they want to try to keep an eye on this fetus really closely. So I'm supposed to go to a specialist, a maternal fetal medicine specialist in a couple of weeks here for a big scan with them. And I'm just really nervous about it because I don't want them to find anything bad. But um, 
So that's kind of the point that I'm at right now. Just lots of fertility treatments and drugs and all that kind of stuff. It's been a long road. So congratulations there. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank it's you. exciting. So just tell me because you're, you haven't had a successful pregnancy yet and you're hearing these stories about all these struggles and like, how does that affect you when other people are, I mean, you said you had to go to the birth of your, was it your sister's baby when your baby had died? Like, what does that do to somebody? And, and how do you feel when other people are talking about being pregnant or success, having a child, even though it's been a struggle? It's really interesting. It, you know, I I constantly feel like a terrible human being <laughs> because I want to slap pregnant people. <laughs> like, like it's anger, like you get angry yeah. because, because it's not fair. Yeah. And, you know, when I listen to stories like, you know, Jessica and Lindsay who have had their struggles and they, they did have to put in effort and, and they went through similar levels of, you know, having to work hard for it, I guess, to put it in a really kind of, crude way um I don't think that upsets me nearly so much but you know a, a very recently a very good friend of mine told me she was pregnant and she's a friend of mine who doesn't really know if she wants babies just you know her husband does and you know they they tried for a month and um you know there's there's a I cried for about three hours um you know I, I'm there's a big part of me that feels really guilty about you know, having such conflicted emotions about a good friend of mine that I should really be happy for. But, um, you know, the more people you talk to, the more you realise that it it is quite normal. My sister, you know, now has a six-month-old who is my niece and um, it's really hard still. I still don't feel like I've bonded with her in the way that I should. Um, she is my first and possibly my only niece and... And I should put more effort in and, you know, I, I constantly feel a little bit guilty when I'm around her. But interestingly enough, when I'm around her as, as the baby, um, the emotions are quite pure. You know, I am sad around babies, but I can, sad is a simple emotion and you can work through that. You can cope with a simple emotion. It's when I am around my sister or when I am around my friend or when I am around people who you know, for, for want of a, a less crude term, had it a bit easier. Um, those are really conflicting emotions and really difficult ones. And there's so much and there's sadness and there's envy and there's resentment and there's bitterness. And, you know, then there's guilt for feeling all of those things. And those are the ones that, um, you know, are really hard to kind of work through because, yeah, sadness is simple and, it's overwhelming sometimes, but you know what to do about sadness. But all of those conflicting emotions are really tough. And I think, uh, and I've said this many times, but the first miscarriage, you know, you can put in the bucket of statistics. You can talk yourself through, it's okay, this, ha this has to happen to one in four people. Why shouldn't it be me? You know, I don't get, I'm no more privileged than other people. If it wasn't me, it would be someone else, you know. And statistically, you know that going into a second pregnancy, you actually statistically are not any less likely to have a successful pregnancy than the first. But once you've lost your second, 
use statistics do go downhill quite rapidly. And so with the second loss, I had sort of three major, I had the grief of losing the little girl that was. Um, I had the grief that I think was probably stronger than than that one individual itself. You know, I'm, I'm not particularly spiritual. I, I don't sort of see the babies that I've lost as as individuals or as souls, you know, I'm not kind of that way inclined. But what really I think the grief is for is at the moment, it's terror that what if this is my life? What if I can't have babies? What if I now, you know, what if I go through this eight more times like Lindsay has or, you know, so a small part of the grief is that individual bub and this excitement you had and the plans you had. And I'm totally one of those people who had already picked the day I was going on maternity leave and already chosen my obstetrician. And, um, but yeah, a huge proportion of the grief is fear of what if, what if I never get one? Um, and then I had the third kind of grief that my relationship with my family fell apart quite a lot at that stage. Um, I didn't get support that I needed and wanted. And um, now, six months later, it's still kind of that way and we're all putting in effort. But I did have a lot of grief as well associated with, you know, being told to suck it up and get over it Um, and what that I felt that that meant for the what I thought I had in family I turns out I don't have, um, and that's that's a whole new type of grief to lose what the vision you thought you had of your family surrounding you and supporting you when you're a single mom. <laughs> so, is it on some level because you're trying to do it alone? Is that why they're not being supportive? I mean, I don't want to get too personal, but uh, no, I'm very blessed with a very liberal family. They were they were never not supportive of my choices. Oh, okay. um, I did spend a number of years slowly acclimatizing the plan, so I was I was very um, were used to the idea about that. But so, um, honestly, I think it was a my family doesn't do emotions well, and um, so after going to the hospital to meet my niece, and then the next day went and I spent four hours, you know, babysitting while my sister had a nap, and my mum went home to have a shower and. Um, the following day I posted on Facebook something really silly like you know it was a bit of a joke about codependency with the dog because I was still in bed at 2pm because he wouldn't get out of bed and I was enjoying snuggles and you know basically I got a phone call from my mother saying what's wrong with you like get over it (laughs) like you know and you know shouldn't you be feeling better by now and you know, you should pull yourself together for your sister. This is her big time. And, um, you know, stop being so angry. And, yeah, literally I got a three-day grace period where I was allowed to grieve. And I think a part of that is because with those miscarriages and the four weeks of am I going to lose it, am I not going to lose it, you know, I leaned on people a lot during that month. So by the time I finally did lose her, everyone but me was over it Um, you know everyone moves on because it's not their lives and you know yeah it's sad for you but a month of possible grief by the time you actually get to real properly I can grieve now because she's gone they're they're done with their processing of it and that's that's really difficult Um, and I think the same and I'm sure um, you know 
others would agree that things like dates that they would have been born, I get really upset on those days. Partly because you're upset of those days, but actually a good huge proportion of my upset on those days is because nobody but me has remembered. And is that is that one of the hardest things about losing these babies, whether they're close like Olivia to being born or whether they're early on in the in the pregnancy is part of the grief process that nobody seems to remember them. I would think that would be like you're saying, like nobody really pays attention to the day you lost them or the day that they were supposed to be born, their due dates, they don't count them as, as real children in some way. Like, is that part of it? I I think it is. I mean, I, I don't expect people to know all the ones for our eight losses, (laughs) but you do. because We just had so many, but, but we, you know, we remember them, but I, I think kind of what Jess was saying, um, we lost a lot of people after Olivia. And what happened was I think there were a lot of people that they don't know how to face those emotions themselves. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. scared of it. Yeah. They're scared to face those emotions because maybe it rehashes something that either they went through or it just rehashes some really deep feelings that they don't want to face. Um, the the night, the, the, the day before we went in and, and she had, she was gone, um, that so she we we went in and she was delivered on a Sunday morning um, or afternoon, but we went in Sunday morning. But on Saturday, we were actually at a really good friend, some really good friends' house, um, and our, and our our two older boys were actually going to stay the night over there. Um, and we we're having dinner with them and all these things, and it's like they were really good friends. And 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 the next day, the whole world changed. They never contacted us after that ever. Wow. Never, ever, ever. Wow. We had people who I I would con- would have considered very, very close friends, very, very much a part of my support network that ghosted us. Yeah. Um, people who didn't want to be around us anymore acted like we were the plague. Yeah. Um, we have some neighbors a couple doors down from us even that we were really good friends with. And after that, the the wife would not even look at me. She wouldn't, and now to this day, she won't even, she acts pissed off every time she sees me and I haven't done anything wrong. It's just, I think she, there must be something there that she just can't face. And mm-hmm. instead it's easier for her to avoid me and act dismissive of me than it is to actually talk to me. Um, and so I was really surprised. I mean, I think as high people in veterinary medicine were considered high achievers because we're very competitive to get into school. We always are like perfectionist mindset, you know, all this stuff, we're high achievers. Mm-hmm. And so we already as high achievers kind of don't have a big circle anyways, because our, our lives are very much involved in pursuing our careers and, and so forth. And, but boy, after Olivia I was really, that was a whole other grief of, of the realization that people who you thought were supposed to be there for you yeah. Or not. Um, one of them was my best friend of 18 years. She actually was the, my, our nanny. She was actually our nanny. Mm. And so in our home, five days a week, taking care of my older boys. Um, and um, there was no emotion from her. No emotion. Yeah. 
it was the oddest thing. And and over the course of the next three months, maybe four months, she got really weird. She got really someone who was my best, best friend since high school. Didn't want to talk to me about it. Didn't, didn't, she was really dismissive of everything. She really avoided me even in my own home. Um, and, and it culminated in her doing some very strange things, being very abusive towards our boys. Um, because she didn't know how to deal with the emotions and we had to fire her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never spoken with her since. People say people, things like it's uncomfortable to talk to you or it's awkward where people don't know what right. to say to you. And I, I do understand that. I, I haven't been easy to be around, you know, I, I am low. And one of the challenges I face is that I want to talk about my babies and other people don't because they don't know how to, um, and so then I get grumpy at them for not, but the, you know, I will a hundred percent admit that I am not the easiest person to be around. And, but there's a part of me that when someone says, Oh, I don't know what to say to you, or this is uncomfortable. I just want to strangle them. You think this is uncomfortable for you? <laughs> you, know, you, you think you are the victim here or that this is hard on you? Like, just man the fuck up. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast. <laughs> um, well, I guess you are now because you just did. <laughs> I just, I think that you deserve it. I do, Yeah, there is a lot of anger at people who, I, I don't dismiss the fact that it's uncomfortable. But it, you, you know, you have to sit with that. And the only way you can really be there for someone properly is being willing to sit them, sit through the worst of it and not try to cheer them up mm-hmm. and not try to distract them. People are grieving. And, and you know, my mom said to me, you know, when do you think you're going to feel better? I don't want to feel better yet. I need to sit in this misery because, you know, grief at the end of the day is how you express love. And I, I don't want to not feel this because that's not fair and that's not honoring and you know even uh, unlike Olivia which is just a beautiful name mine didn't have names yet but my my fetuses did because of course you know I'd seen them when they were eight cells large and I had nicknamed all of my my little them. and so my first one was called Blob and my second one was called Squishy um and they sound silly and they sound ridiculous and it's weird to say them, you know, out of context. But when I was pregnant, my little squishy was such a term of endearment. And now I can't say the words out loud because no one else will. I can't. My family will not, you know, use the terms they won't talk about. Even like, you know, my dad, who of my family members is actually emotionally competent um you know he wants and he tries really hard and he wants to but he asks he says things like oh I know there's a difficult day for you coming up <laughs> like and that's the best he can do he can't say can't say the words this week he can't yeah he, he for him it's just impossible all he can do is his absolute best which is acknowledge that I'm going through a tough time mm-hmm. so I think some of those things where people try to try to help you or avoid you or say things like at least <laughs> any any can I, any advice for anyone out there who does don't say don't say that 
if the sentence starts with at least, don't say it. <laughs> at least you know you can get pregnant. At least you lost them early. At least, at least, don't say it. If it starts with at least, it's going to upset us. <laughs> it's the what most can, unhelpful thing. What can they say, Jessica? Like what? I know, don't say this, say this. Like what, what helps? Or, I mean, I guess it can't help. Maybe yeah, that's a silly know. question. I don't know specifically things that they could say in this, those situations, but I've heard many of those same comments. Like at least it was early on. There's probably something really wrong and had it gone full term, you know, that would have been really bad or something like that. I've got a lot of those comments. Don't make me feel better. But um, I, the, the people that helped me the most were the people that, like you guys said, just sat with me through that grief and that pain um, and just didn't try to make me feel better and was like, wow, it's really blows. And just, yeah, that was, I think, the most helpful thing. I had a few key people, like my parents and some close friends, and my husband was really supportive too. Just um, that was that was the most helpful thing for me, just people that sat with me in the grief and didn't try to make me feel better. Because nothing that anybody said made me feel better at all. So, I think one of the things that I that has always touched me is um, when we went back to the hospital to have every time we would go to tr- labor and delivery triage with the twins, I would catch nurses with the little rose pin on. Um, oh, that's nice. People who had been there with Olivia that we gave them those rose pins, and that they still wore them. They still, then they, and they knew the story and they would tell people about my Olivia. And like you said, she made an impact and that that's all I could ask for, you know, that's all you can ask for. And we'll have people. So, I mean, for the things that people, yeah, don't say, you know, (laughs) at least you got to see her on those ultrasounds. At least you got to spend time with her after she was born. Um, Maybe it's not meant to be. Oh, God. Maybe. <laughs> That's the worst. Maybe. It's the worst. <laughs> like there's the some purpose or something. That's always a cliche that this, there was a purpose in this. Not helpful at all. Um, mm-hmm. We do need to go through the grieving process. We, we do need to move through the grieving, the stages of grief at our own pace. Mm-hmm. For some people, it happens rapidly. For some people, it doesn't. Some people get stuck in certain phases of it and they need a support system that will help them move on to the next phase mm-hmm. without making those comments. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the biggest things is just making this not a cliche, like a, a taboo. People, mm-hmm. people think it's so taboo to talk like, about infertility yeah. or loss. And for, for us, at least, I tell every single person, every single person on my team, every single person that I've hired, because after, after my daughter died, we changed so much about the clinic. I weeded out so many people that I was like, you know what? You're a leaner. You're not a lifter. And because you're a leaner, all of that fell on my shoulders. And I know that played a role in me losing my daughter. And I only want a team of lifters where we lift everybody up. Everybody lifts each other up. So mm-hmm. you're either with me or you're a leaner and you need to go. And I cut out like half my team. Mm-hmm. And then every time I hired someone, when I interviewed them, I told them the story about Olivia and the impact that she had on me and, and how she was changing my form of leadership and how we were going to practice needs-based leadership because everybody has their own needs. And I want to make sure we help them meet their needs so that they can be lifters 
and they don't have to go through that awful isolating feeling of whatever they're going through in their lives. And after that, when we made it not a taboo thing to talk about, my entire team will talk about Olivia. Yes, if you ask anybody on my team who who's Olivia, mm. you know they they all know. It's so um, great that you've managed to create that culture of safeness for for people to to talk both about Olivia, but I'm sure that also has flow on effects for them and things right. that they maybe are struggling with in their own lives or anybody that in the future had struggles with fertility or loss and I totally agree with you that you know there's this there's this thing about you're not supposed to tell people until 12 weeks and I I started off my pregnancy you know naive I think about the me that was before babies and the me that is now the naive me um you know I had this really strong philosophy that not talking about pregnancies until 12 weeks was anti-feminist I think that, you know, as long as you make it this women's problem behind closed doors where people, you know, don't feel like they can tell people in case it's awkward when they have to tell people later that they lost it, like in case it makes other people uncomfortable if if it doesn't stick or, you know, I, and obviously in the workplace, you know, because you don't want your employer to have thoughts that you might want to have a baby soon. And so the feminist part of me had a big problem with this and, I really, yeah. And so as soon as I got pregnant, you know, obviously I knew very early because I knew exactly when I was implanted. So, you know, literally knew 14 days after transfer. And I told people happily, openly, really kind of excitedly because I believed that they could then be there for me if something didn't go right. They'd seen the excited parts so they could to some degree understand the lower parts. But to be honest, having lost two now, I don't know if, if I get pregnant again, I will tell people about it because the awkwardness with which I've largely been met and the, oh, I don't know what to say about that. So I'm either going to change the topic or, you know, give some really unhelpful platitude. Um, which is so I, sad. I, so you can definitely message me and tell me. Thank you. Yeah, all of us. You can let all us know. Because <laughs> when I first met you, Jess, I think our first podcast, was it our first one you were pregnant? And then the second one we did, you had lost. Was it Squishy that you lost? Oh, yeah. And yeah, that was that was something you were going through when I when I met you. Yeah. And I think, you know, jumping back one conversation, what are the things that people can do to help? You know, and I I agree, nothing you do helps, but there are things you can do that doesn't make it worse. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's do that. For people like me that, you know, that haven't been through this, what can we do? What can we say? How can we support? For me, the absolute biggest one was people would genuinely say things like, let me do, let me know if there's anything I can do. And I was in the headspace of both, I can't even think, decision making is not something I can fathom right now. But also, you know, I'm a very independent person who asking for help doesn't come very naturally to. But let alone what I really actually needed was 
healthy food. <laughs> like I was overeating it every night. A couple of people bought me chocolates and cookies and things, but actually I needed a real food group. You know, I needed some salads and some roasted vegetables. But it's a weird thing to turn around to somebody who's, you know, patting you on the back and kind of you aren't sure if they're offering you a platitude when they say, let me know if there's anything I can do. So my biggest suggestion to anybody, and I don't know that this just applies to, to losses of babies, but possibly grief more broadly, is do just do something. Just bring them some home-cooked meal. Just turn up to walk the dog for them, you know, or get them a house cleaner. Or, you know, I think the, the less they need to think or feel that they're asking for your help or they have to come up for a, with a way for you to help. Like it, it puts a weird, strange pressure on you to feel like your job is to help other people feel better because you know that other people feel better about it and less awkward if they can help. And so you want to offer them a way to, to support you, but it feels unfair that you have to make them feel better too. So I, I honestly, if I could say one thing, it, well, two things, it's a home cooked healthy food <laughs> and be just do something. Don't, you know, ask their permission, you know, in the way, but don't do it in a, what would you like? Do it in a, I'm going to come around at five to walk the dog. Is that okay? You know, the very, this is how I would like to help you. I, I would say for me, it was the most useful thing out of anything. And yeah. as with Lindsay and Jessica, people who just are willing to just sit with you in it. Don't, yeah. And be sad, right? Just sit and be sad. Alongside, try alongside you. you. Feel better. Don't try to tell you it will be okay. Don't try to cheer you up. You know, if it really comes to it, trashy ass movies and just sit with me and be in the room while I'm freaking miserable so that I know that you're not tempted to avoid me, basically. I think that when people don't do those things and they avoid us, it makes you feel very unworthy. Yeah. That you're not valuable that you're not um, worthy of their love, of them caring about you. And so, I mean, after Olivia died, yeah, I was in the same mode that Jess was talking about. People would say, what can I do to help? And it was like, I don't even know if I took a shower today. <laughs> I There's no way I would be able to tell you how to help me. And thankfully, there was a big group of veterinarian moms who got together. They got a meal, a meal train going. My kids would not have eaten if they didn't do that. I wouldn't have eaten. We had people, sometimes people would sign up for it that I didn't even, I didn't even know. Other vet moms in the area that I didn't know, other vet moms from other states who sent, who would send food like DoorDash. And I live like out in the boonies, like most people don't deliver out here. And they would somehow find a way to get food to us. Mm. Sometimes they would come drop it on our front porch with a little note, just saying, I'm just thinking about you. Um, mm. They would send us books about grief. Um, on the one year anniversary, one of our reps got me um, pink Olivia roses. Because <laughs> mm. there's such a thing, I guess, as an Olivia rose. And she got us pink, a big, huge bouquet of pink roses with little pink angel. People just saying, you know, we're here. We care about you. We don't expect anything in return. 
We just want you to know that we're here. Mm. Um, and I mean, those, those meals meant so much to me. Those little cards meant so much. I still have all of them. Mm. Um, they mean a lot. They mean a lot to me. Or people randomly saying, you know, I, I remember your story. Mm. And I, I know somebody acknowledging. I know someone who was having some weird symptoms in their third trimester. I told them to go in and they rushed into a C-section and baby's fine now, but you know, people just like spreading the word, you know? And it's like, thank you. Thank you for coming back and telling me. Yeah. Thank you for coming back and telling me that by me putting myself out there as emotional as it is and as hard as it is, thank you for coming back and telling me that it's making a difference. So that also I think has helped me move through some of the stages of grief is that, you know, she's not coming back. <laughs> she, she's not coming back. But, you know, we can help other people. Mm. Um, so I, I think those are, the, those are the little things. And it might seem silly. Someone, someone yeah. coordinated for me to get cards like even six months later. You know, mm. because the, the initial few weeks, everyone is involved. Everyone wants to help. It's so the hard wrong. thing about grief is, is people kind of forget and move on yeah, and right. you're still, Everyone you're still in it. Right, right. And I agree with you, Lindsay, that sometimes the little things are the biggest things. I think, I know I was talking yes. to somebody quite recently about one of the things that I appreciated most, there were two or three friends that I have that are overseas that sent me messages that said things like, just checking in, don't expect a reply, just want you to know I love you. You know, like, so you didn't feel like, you know, if you weren't ready to talk or if you weren't wanting to engage with the world yet, you didn't feel any obligation to, because a lot of people do want to help and they want to reach out. So then, but you kind of feel obligated to respond and say, thank you. And so I think those people that can either just reach out going, no response necessary. I'm here whenever you're ready, if that's next week or next year, that those messages meant a lot to me. Um, And I think that that's something that people could consider. Um, Just, just knowing that the person may not be ready to talk to you even if you know even if yesterday they talked to you today they might be having a terrible day um and just letting them know that you're still there not you know and that yeah the six months later mark you're still there not you know you don't think that it's all over now just because your day-to-day carries on but honestly what somebody could do for me now and you know i say this nostalgically with knowledge that it's not going to happen is would be for somebody to ring me on squishy's due date and say that they remembered that and those are the things that if i if if i ever have a friend or family member who's going through something similar the day it happens i would put it in my diary for the next year and the following year so that i know to reach out to them on a day that's going to be lonely for them that, that's really good advice for people because yeah. I think people feel awkward about those kind of things. And for you to say that that's okay to acknowledge it and remember, you know, like you want them to remember Olivia, you want them to remember Squishy, you know, these, these were your children. And I mm-hmm. think not everybody thinks of it that way. And I think that might be part of the pain, the added grief that people don't acknowledge that these were these were 
your children and are your children. Yeah. And I think what, what, what feels right for one person may not be the same. You know, all three of us here have very different stories of, of loss and grief and struggle. Um, and so uh, perhaps there are people out there who wouldn't appreciate that as much. But um, I know for me personally, you know, that that knowledge that other people have remembered is probably one of the, the most valuable things for my soul. Yeah, one I was going to... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 it's okay. I've been chatting too much. (laughs) Oh, no, no worries. Um, One of the things I was going to add just that helped me through the process, um, I kind of created my own little memorial garden because I live out in the boonies as well. And so I have a yard and we can make a garden. And um, like my mom and several of my friends from work who are all moms had gotten me some plants, perennials. And so these are things that I still look at to this day. And um, can look at and remember those pregnancies. I don't, I don't even myself, I don't even know if I remember the due dates. I, I remember when I lost them. And so I don't know if for me, that's something that I want to rehash every year, but I really love that I have something I can look at in the nicer months that just bring back those good memories and with a little angel statue out there. That's something that's been comforting for me, at least plants. So that's a good one. Yeah, I planted a jacaranda tree as well. The other one I struggled, um, I lost Blob at the beginning of December and Christmas was challenging for me because I didn't feel like I should or could be cheerful and do Christmas carol things, let alone put a tree up in my house. And, you know, I had a little fake tree that used to come out every year. Um, and, you know, by the 23rd of December, I hadn't put it up because I didn't feel in any way like it felt right to celebrate something that's quite a family-oriented kind of thing when I no longer had this family, I guess. Um, But a friend of mine suggested and, you know, sent me a link. There was a Christmas bauble, um, really beautiful kind of glass ornament with a feather inside it and, um, you know, an inscription that was, you know, I, I... carried you for every second of your life and I'll love you for every second of mine and somehow having that hung on the tree made it okay like and I think about future Christmases where hopefully I I might have kids and presents under a tree for a future child Um, I think that those small reminders that don't have to be sad hopefully forever but you know are still an acknowledgement that's you were meant to be a part of this family and I'm not going to pretend that that's not true forever. So, um, you know, this year for Christmas, I'll, I'll have something similar made for Squishy. And I think just those things that are, they don't have to be in your face because I, I don't know about everybody, but I certainly don't want to see reminders all of the time. But I think those moments that are particularly special, or particularly could be painful, making sure that people don't ignore it around you and you know I think having whether it's a tree ornament or or a plant and that you can actually see people you know that that's my memorial for I think that that's quite important so um, go ahead uh, the um the the first Christmas that was the same we lost her right before Halloween and my kids wanted to go trick-or-treating. And I was like, 
can I just dress in all black? I don't even, what do you want me to do? Um, my, so my in-laws invited us over um, and I just sat on the couch because I had had a C-section. Um, I was still recovering from surgery. And I just sat on the couch and someone came to the door from across the street that had just had a baby the day before. Mm. And it was so hard. I mean, I was just, I was a black cloud. You know, I just, I didn't want to do anything. And then Christmas came around. And the only reason that I put up the tree was because of my kids. Mm. I, I didn't want to at all. But they wanted to. And they really pushed me. I had gotten some stockings and they really pushed me to get a stocking for Olivia. Mm. And so I did. And <laughs> um, So every year we all write letters to her and we put them in the stocking about, you know, the things we wanted to do. My, um, he's now 10, my second son. Um, he really, he took it really hard when she died. He would have dreams about her. He said she would come visit him in her dream, in his dreams all the time. And he would say things like, I was supposed to pick out your bows and your dresses and your pretty shoes. And I was going to do that for you. And it's so sad to read his letters <laughs> to her, you know. Um, but, but, you know, we started doing that. And it's been so um, therapeutic, I think, to write those letters to her. Mm-hmm. To write those letters and, and, and show her that, you know, I, we all still remember you. You're all still, you're such a big part of our, all of our lives. And we actually had some friends who said, can we write letters too? Mm. Um, it's just been amazing. And so now Christmas has always been my favorite holiday. But of course, that that year I was like, no, not doing it. And it, it almost took that holiday away from me for a long time. But now I can find joy in it again, you know, because I we, we all gather around and write these letters um, to Olivia. And it, I'm just so glad that someone recommended that because I, I would never have thought of that. <laughs> it's a nice idea. So is there any um, advice that you would give someone like Jess who is in the middle of this? Um, Jessica is also in the middle of this. Um, you went, went through it so many times, Lindsay. Like, is there some kind of advice that you could give someone that's struggling with any of this infertility loss, all these issues now that you can share that you've learned for yourself? And then how do you, how do you move forward? Like, how do you keep trying? You know, my, my story is just so different. I, I kept trying because I had had that dream. (laughs) Someone told me I was going to have boy, girl twins. Um, I saw them. I saw myself. Um, I remember being really young and telling my grandma about the dream. And she said, you know, I had a twin brother and he died when we were five from leukemia, but I had a boy, I had a, a, a twin brother. And, um, so they run in our family and, and I remember telling her, you know, I, I hope I don't look like that when I'm older. Cause I had seen myself and I had seen, you know, my two twins. So for me, I, I knew that I needed to keep going because 
something just kept telling me that 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 was the light at the end of the tunnel for me. But if I didn't have that, because there were definitely times that I questioned it, like, this isn't going to work. This is eight miscarriages. And no one's helping, and the medications aren't helping. So my advice would be to either find your anchor, find something that brings you hope, that brings you joy, that you can hold on to, because it is a long journey, and it is a roller coaster. Um, making sure you meet your other needs in your life. Um, as high achievers, we don't meet all of our needs very depleted which leads to a lot of bad things as I learned the hard way um, you know getting involved in other things things that you find that you're passionate about or that make you feel purposeful I mean those are the things that really help me to continue down the journey and find hope and joy and things but it was hard it was, it was so hard it was so hard because there were I had employees who had one night stands and got pregnant mm -hmm. And it was really hard. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not, I mean, there, there's nothing I think that can help people through that part, except to just understand you got to face it head on. You, you just have to face it. You have to find something that you can latch onto. That's your little sliver of hope and joy to get through it. Um, I mean, I, I hate to admit it, but my older boys were not my, my hope that helped me help get me through. <laughs> I was um, at that point felt like maybe I wasn't supposed to be a mom. I had a lot of really dark thoughts, a lot of really, really dark times after Olivia. Um, but you just have to keep going through. You have to just understand that there is a light at the end of the tunnel um, somewhere. And for people that have that drive and that passion to be a mom, to be a parent, it's in you for a reason and you just have to keep pursuing it. That's just what I tell people. I have a, I have a friend who's going through the same thing. You are just mm. single mom by choice going through fertility treatment. And mm. um, I just keep telling her, you know, just, it's okay. I'll be your support. It's okay. Mm. It's going to be a roller coaster. Might not work. Initially, you just keep trying. And when you have a bad day, just let me know. And, I periodically just send her messages and that's all you can do. That's all you can do. I think those support networks are, are an interesting one because I think naive me, pre-pregnancy me, would have said things like, you know, I've got a, a family I can depend on and, you know, the, the support networks that I thought were there yeah. are often a little bit surprising. Um, and don't get me wrong, I, I have a best friend since vet school who you know, lived in, in a different state to me, literally the other side of the country. Um, and when I lost Squishy, she was at my house before my mum was. Um, you know, she just, it took her two hours to be on a plane. And I think moments like that, you really know who, who, you, who your support networks right. are. Um, and, you know, so I, I think it's interesting because I would have said to people, you know, make sure you lean on your support. But it's interesting that you don't actually necessarily know who they're going to be until it's happened. <laughs> bad um, so, so have a wide enough network that you've got some backup plans. <laughs> hmm. I think I think people just need to accept the help too, and and yeah. sometimes it is really odd things. I sometimes it really is, and 
And you really want to say, is that, is that how you show you care? That's odd. And you, and you just need to understand that they don't, they don't know how to do it. They, they don't even, there were so many people we encountered that were like, we don't even know how to help you. We would just be devastated if we were in your shoes. Mm. Um, but uh, here is a random gift card that you can use <laughs> at any time, you know, but it was fine. It, yeah. that was their You're way trying. of saying Came from a place of love, right? Exactly, exactly. I think um, one of the most thoughtful things that anybody did for me, again, very, very excellent best friend, is that um, after the second loss, I had a, a huge bleed after the DNC. And, you know, it, it was, I don't want to overshare, but it was a massacre in my room, basically. And there was just blood everywhere. And I, I couldn't escape it. And, you know, it was three o'clock in the morning when I phoned my best friend. And luckily, the time difference meant that it wasn't as bad as it sounds. Um, but, you know, I slept in a bed covered in blood because I couldn't cope with it. I didn't, I just couldn't bring myself to do something as arbitrary as clean the goddamn sheets. Um, and in the morning, by the time I woke up, She'd sent me the details. She'd already booked me a cleaner to come to my house. She'd ordered some Kmart new sheets to be delivered that afternoon and had paid for a fancy hotel in the city for me to stay at and for the night so that I didn't have to go back to my room. Like those are the things where someone's really thought through what is she saying? You know, what is she struggling with? They're really hurting right now. How can I solve today's problem? I know I can't fix this for her, but what's her problem today? And what can't she do for herself? How can I solve that? And that's, you know, that's how you know people really love you. Yeah. But I also agree with Lindsay that sometimes just the randomest things that people really thought, I don't know what to do, but I want you to know I love you. That's meaningful too. Well, um, I appreciate this so much. Is there more that we can say? Is there a, a last a last little bit of something we we missed? You know, I, I just wanted to say that um, I know you had kind of posed one of the questions before about um, how uh, almost like in the veterinary field in particular, how can we help? How can we address this? Mm-hmm. Because it is very rampant. I, they all come out of the woodwork. As soon as you say that you've gone through this, as soon as you say and you open up and you're honest, could not believe the people that I had known for years. I never knew they'd lost a child. Never, never, never. They come out of the woodwork. And what I realized is that in our profession, it happens a lot. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it happens probably more than others, but it's just like amazes me. And one of the things I was telling people is one of the things that I changed after Olivia is setting boundaries, setting boundaries for myself and making sure that my team was okay, that I only surrounded myself with a team that was okay, that I was setting boundaries for myself and okay, that I was allowing them to also set boundaries for themselves for what they needed. And That building a network around you of people that are okay with you setting those boundaries, okay with you saying, everybody knows October 22nd, don't, don't contact me. Don't contact, don't contact me unless you're sending me something that's a pink rose or you're just saying, I'm just thinking about you today. And it's, so it's nice. I think in, in, in veterinary medicine in general, we need to be okay with setting those boundaries and we need 
all of our teams to understand that we have boundaries and that on those days that we're really struggling, maybe we do need some space and we need them to not make us feel guilty about it. If we're saying, I'm feeling overwhelmed, because sometimes those waves do come at odd times. Mm, like, definitely. It doesn't have to be a holiday. It doesn't have to be her anniversary. It doesn't have to be anything. I mean, I'm, I might just get this wave. Um, my, my first day back, <laughs> this is the irony, my first day back in the office after Olivia. My first two patients, one was a cat named Olivia. I had never seen a patient named Olivia. Never. A cat named Olivia. And the second room was a newborn baby girl. I mean, talk about being tested. I walked out of those rooms. I had to excuse myself from the, the room with the newborn. I told them what had happened. I started bawling and I, I had to leave. And my team stepped in and they finished the appointment. And, the, and they, they gave me that, that room, that space to like go take a time out in my office for a couple hours. I think they bought me some cookies and slid them. <laughs> Here, here's this. <laughs> but just knowing that they were okay with me having that boundary. They were, they were okay with me saying I needed to take that time for myself. They were okay with me saying on those days that I would have a really bad day. They were okay with me saying, hey, I got to go get myself right before I can come back and be effective. That has been the single thing that has allowed me to stay in this profession. My daughter died in my clinic because of me being there at my clinic. I, I, I wanted to sell the place. I wanted to get out of the field. I wanted to never do this again. Um, but, the, but the only reason that I'm still here, the only reason I'm, I'm still a practice owner and, and still go into my clinic, you know, stand at the treatment island where she died is because I have a team around me that understands I have boundaries and understands that it's okay for me to do that. I think that's a huge thing for veterinary medicine that we need to be okay with. Well, and I, I feel so blessed and honored that um, Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones talked about this to me and volunteered to discuss this on this podcast in order to help others and realize that this is something that we need to talk about and that we need to support each other in. So it's not a secret and it's not a surprise and that we know that, you know, we're all women in this profession and these are things that, you know, we go through and I'm just, I'm just really, really feel blessed that the three of you are willing to talk about all this because it's hard and I, I'm going to cry, but yeah, it's. Well, I think it's really great that you're doing this. I I, I think that's great. We don't, like I said, it's taboo. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, so the Lindsay's focus on it being okay to talk about and it being okay to not be okay, you know, is sort of, I guess, you know, so, so very tragic because, you know, Olivia was was so close and, um, you know, I think possibly a lot of your team are able to kind of conceptualize Olivia as a little baby girl. Um, Whereas I think sometimes when you're losing them quite early, people 
because it's this, oh, it was just first trimester, like it wasn't a person yet. Um, and I think if, if I would love to see any sort of changes come about or by us being able to talk so much about it and be open and, and allow people to know that other people are going through this and that even the people here have had three totally different experiences, but they're all equally difficult and tragic in their own ways. I would like us to start talking about it you know, people to hopefully start to feel comfortable talking about their pregnancy when they're pregnant so that this loss in the first trimester isn't belittled. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, oh, well, it was only a first trimester loss. And, and don't get me wrong, I want to be really clear, Lindsay, that I cannot even fathom going through all of that and getting so far and losing them then. And, and you know, I don't think that there's a spectrum of grief, but if, if there is, you definitely, you know, are, um, it's a whole different level of tragedy. But I guess my experiences have been just that little bit more that people tend to, because there's this taboo about talking about it before 12 weeks, if you have talked about it or if you do lose them within that 12 weeks, it's kind of considered, oh, well, you know, at least it was first trimester. And I think I would love people to feel more comfortable in the future talking about their pregnancy as soon as they're pregnant so that people can see how excited you were yeah. and that this baby meant so much to you and that you've planned your life for the next 20 years now. Mm -hmm. And so if and when those things don't work out, people see how much it meant to you because your baby was your right. baby, right. not right. on some unknown, it's only first trimester. And okay. that would be my big thing. I'd really like it to be just talked about early enough that people know that your baby meant something to you. And I think employers, I mean, as an employer, I will tell you when I even have an inkling that one of my employees is pregnant, I am immediately like, look, uh, I want to protect you. I, okay, let me help you, please. I, you know, but I know so many people are like scared to like, they, they don't want to say anything. They don't want to even, oh, I can't take an x-ray because they're worried their employer is going to already have those bad thoughts. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose them. They're not going to come back after maternity leave or, oh, this is such a hassle. It's like, I don't know why we have to think that way. Mm. You know, this is a joyful time. This is such a joyful time for any woman. And and I mean, and their spouse, if they're married or what, you know, whatever, or significant other, or even if not, like with Jess, like is it should be such a happy time and we shouldn't be downplaying that. Mm -hmm. So I would really, really love the culture to change, like Jess said, to that you can talk about this. You can share your joy with people around you because by sharing your joy with them, like you said, if and when something does happen, they shared in that joy with you. They feel some of the grief. They're going to be more supportive of you. Mm -hmm. oh, that's true. I mean, that's really true that you, you can share the, in the joy of the pregnancy and, and then share in the grief of the loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you all so much. And I hope that if anybody's out there that's struggling with any of these issues, then please reach out to me and I will get you in touch with one of these ladies and um, ask questions. We're here. Absolutely. <laughs>
100%. We're rooting for all the babies to come. We're rooting for <laughs> Jess's baby to come and Jessica's baby to come. And we're, we're rooting for them and praying for them. Thanks. Baby dust, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. yeah. They're out there. All right. I appreciate all of you. Any Anything else? Any last words before we wrap it up? So Jessica, Jessica and Lindsay, I, I'm just honored to be here with you. Thank you for hosting us. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. 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 Thank you.